Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 125. It's titled, Is the Economy Really Doing That Poorly? The polling organization Gallup, in their most recent weekly poll on how Americans feel about the economy, indicated 26% of Americans say current economic conditions are excellent or good, and 30% said they are poor. In addition, 37% of Americans say the economy is getting better, while 57% say it is getting worse. Americans have been pessimistic about the economy for most of the economic recovery. From 2008 through today, more Americans questioned in the poll considered current economic conditions poor and getting worse than those that considered it excellent or good and getting better. The only period in which more Americans were positive than negative on the economy since the end of the Great Recession was for a few weeks in early 2015. How do Americans determine the status of the economy? If somebody asked you, a pollster called you up, how would you judge? I suspect most don't look at the statistics. Their frame of reference is their day-to-day experiences and what they see friends and families going through. Maybe they base it on what they hear a presidential candidate say or report by the media. Or maybe it's just a feeling. In a recent New York Times article, Cheryl Feltzer who lives in suburban Columbus, Ohio, when asked about the economy, said, Everybody was fat in the 90s. Everyone had money. It's not like today. The grocery stores are full. The mall is full. You can say things look good, but I think we're about to have a big crash. Larry Edelson of the Real Wealth Report sent me an urgent special report in the mail this past week. I've never heard of him. His report is titled The Great Debt Collapse of 2016 to 2020. It's kind of a wide window where he predicts, quote, a roller coaster ride through hell. We are in for five years of chaos in the economy, the markets and in our business and personal lives. How does he know that? He doesn't. Although the report says, quote, he's been right about the future an astonishing number of times throughout his 28 year, 38 year career. He undoubtedly has also been wrong an astonishing number of times. Now, if a pollster called up someone who had just finished reading that urgent report or the thousands of other similar reports from doomsayers, I wonder what they would say about current and expected economic conditions. We, we get anchored by really sort of the most recent anecdote we've seen or sort of what we're experiencing now. I've seen this recently in our own life. I've mentioned we have lived the summer at our farm in Teton Valley. This is a sprawling 
farmhouse that they they sort of threw in for free when we bought the 80 acres. We we re, we restored it, but it it's too big of a house for us. And it was built for a farmer with with six kids. But having lived here for five months, you sort of get used to the the open spaces, the open spaces outdoors, the larger rooms indoors. And so we, Lapril and I, have been restoring or remodeling a house in Idaho Falls. And when I go to that house now, it feels small compared to where I'm at. I mean, just your perception says, well, this house is, is very, very cramped. Yet when... I used to go to that house six months ago or a year ago before we moved out to the farm. We were living in a smaller house, and I would go to this house we're remodeling. It would feel spacious. Oh, this this house is so much more spacious than where we're currently living. It's a question of what we get used to. And so when we talk about how we feel about the economy, a lot of it is our just our frame of reference, what we're hearing in the media, what we're hearing from candidates who are running for office. And that can adjust our perception. But what do the statistics say? Is the economy really doing that poorly? The most recent U.S. employment report released by the Bureau of Labor Statistics listed off the official unemployment rate at 4.9%, about where it was at the start of the recession in early 2008. It is down from its high of 10% in October 2009. The U.S. Census Bureau reports that full-time year-round workers increased by 2.4 million in 2015. Now, the lowest unemployment rates in recent decades was 4.4% in May 2007 and 3.8% in April 2009. So at 4.9%, we're, we're above some of the lowest unemployment rates we've experienced. The unemployment rate measures the percent of the labor force who are actively looking for jobs. Citizens who are retired, in school, disabled, discouraged, or not wanting to work for lifestyle reasons are not part of the labor force. Consequently, it's helpful to look at employment statistics for those in the key working age group of ages 25 to 54, where the official unemployment rate is 4.3%. Now, within that age group, 81.3% of them are either employed or actively looking for work. And that statistic is called the labor force participation rate. In 1950, it was 65%. And then it steadily grew in subsequent decades as more women in that age cohort of 25 to 54 entered the workforce. It peaked at 84.6%. So of the total population in age 25 to 54, 84.6% were either employed or actively looking for work. So that was a peak, 84.6, in early 1999. Then it dipped during the recession of 2001 and recovered to 83.3% in January 2008, just prior to the Great Recession. But it's been declining ever since, very, very slowly. As I mentioned, now it's 81.3%. So we're down two percentage points from where we were at the beginning of the, of the Great Recession. What's hard to determine is of the 18.7% of the working age population that is not working and not actively looking for work, how many are unable to work due to disabilities or other issues? How many just prefer not to work? How many are willing to work but don't believe they can get a job in their chosen field so they aren't looking? 
Or how many want a job but aren't looking because they can't or are unwilling to move to where the jobs are? Unemployment rates are not straightforward given all the many circumstances individuals find themselves in. They are also also hard to pin down because of ongoing turnover. The Bureau of Labor Statistics recently reported that in January or July 2016, 4.9 million Americans left their jobs, either voluntarily or involuntarily, while 5.2 million people started new jobs. That same month, the BLS estimated 275,000 new jobs were created. So the, 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 the actual new jobs were just a small proportion of the Americans that were leaving jobs and starting new jobs. The employment separation rate, so employees that are, are leaving voluntary involuntarily or they get fired, that that's called the separation rate, as a percent of the total employment was 3.4%. That's the turnover. That means over the course of a year, of over a third of Americans leave their jobs. That's very, very high turnover. So you get all this movement, which makes compiling employment statistics very challenging. Yet, despite those challenges, it's probably safe to, to surmise that the national employment situation continues to slowly improve but it is not as good as it was at the economic peak in 2007. We've not got to the low of the, of the unemployment, but we've add, added 2.5 million jobs last year. Millions and millions more jobs have, have been added over time. But there are some areas of the economy or some regions that the employment situation is worse. As we've gone through the presidential election, I've read a number of articles about the struggles of coal miners and, and the challenges in Appalachia and, and Wyoming and other regions. And I, it, it piqued my interest because I wanted to, to know now how bad were things and what is causing such distress among coal miners. So there, there was an article in Kentucky, for example, the unemployment rate is 4.9%. So it's similar to the national average, but the number of coal mining jobs has fallen to 6,500 from 18,000 in 2008. In Wyoming, the biggest coal-producing state in the U.S., which accounts for 40% of production, the unemployment rate climbed from 3.8% in March 2015 to 5.7% as of July 2016. And in the coal mining county of Campbell, Wyoming, the unemployment rate was 7.5% in July, up from 3.8% a year earlier. In an article in the New York Times, Ralph Kingan, who's mayor of Wright, Wyoming, said, we ain't feeling too much of all that economic growth that I've heard was going on. It ain't out in the West. In 2014, there were 75,000 coal mine workers down from 92,000 in 2011. So you've had a a significant drop-off in coal miners just from 2011 to 2014. And that is that is from information from the Energy Information Agency. And in the show notes of this episode, I'll have links to the, the various statistic, statistical reports and other articles that I mention. If you are a member of my Insider's Guide, you've already gotten those show notes as well as a summary article of this week's episode. You can sign up for the Insider's Guide at moneyfortherestofus.net. While you're there, you can sign up for my free investment course, Learn to Invest in Seven Steps, 
Or if you're a U.S.-based listener, just text the word INSIDER to the number 44222. So we've had a drop-off, an 18% decline in coal mine workers from from 2011 through 2014. But what's the long-term trends? Coal mining jobs have been declining for decades. The peak was in 1923. There were 705,000 coal mining jobs in 1923. In 1984, there were 178,000 coal mining jobs. And then, as I mentioned, we, the low well, the low was 71,000 in 2003. And then you, we had a peak. So we, from 2003 through 2011, it increased 92,000 jobs. That was driven by demand for coal from China as it was expanding rapidly its coal use for energy production. That led to a lot of hiring. Now that hiring is falling off pretty dramatically. And coal miners are upset about the job losses. Jenny Williams, a community college teacher in Hazard, Kentucky, said in the New York Times, when you've been on $70,000 a year in coal mines and your life's pulled out from under you, who else can you be mad at but the government? In that same article, the author Roger Cohen writes, Kentuckians are clamoring aboard the Trump train and to heck with its destination. Obama is blamed for the collapse of coal, particularly in eastern Kentucky and the ever more stringent standards of the Environmental Protection Agency. Beyond that, the blame is aimed at airy-fairy liberals more concerned about climate change, often contested or derided, than about Americans trying to make their house payments. Ten years ago, half of U.S. energy production was from coal. In 2015, only a third of it. Is it all due to environmental regulations? Some is. It has had some impact, particularly in encouraging the development of solar and wind energy. But the biggest driver in reducing reliance on coal was the abundance of natural gas and its plummeting prices as a result of the domestic oil and gas boom which was made possible by horizontal drilling technology and fracking. Natural gas accounts for 33% of energy production, up from 20% in 2006. So most of coal's energy production share is, is being taken away from natural gas. Renewable energy production, which includes hydroelectric, wind, and solar, has grown from 9.5% to 13.5%. So it's up about 4 percentage points, while natural gas is up 13 percentage points. The shift to natural gas was market-driven. National gas ener- natural gas energy production became significantly more competitive relative to coal. In 2008, the EIA estimated the cost of natural gas was $8 per million BTU of energy production, versus $2 per million BTU for coal. So there was a significant advantage for coal over natural gas, much cheaper. In 2015, natural gas production costs fell to approximately $3 per million BTU, while coal remained a little over $2 per million BTU. The rising competitiveness of natural gas resulted in more demands for jobs in oil and gas extraction and less demand for coal miners. That's just simply how the economics work. In the year 2000, there were 123,000 workers in the U.S. employed in oil and natural gas extraction. At the end of 2014, oil and natural gas workers peaked at 200,000. 
Today, there are 173,000 oil and gas workers. In other words, the number of coal mining jobs today are about the same as they were in 2000, but oil and natural gas jobs have increased 41%. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N. A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. So if you have a job in the oil fields, you probably feel pretty good about the economy, whereas if you're a coal miner and you lost your job, you're not feeling good. So you have to get behind the numbers and recognize there will always be pockets that are improving and pockets that that are, are, are deteriorating. So we have to look at the national rates. And again, things could be better, but the job situation is improving. Now, although employment is increasing nationally and unemployment rates are decreasing, Americans' perception of the economy is also influenced by the quality of jobs and their pay. The U.S. Census Bureau recently reported that median household income rose 5.2% in 2015 to $56,515. It was a significant jump. So median is, is the middle. So half of the population households are making more than that, half are making less. But at $56,515, it is remains below its 2007 level right before the recession of $57,423. 
and its 1999 level of 57909 Now, all these figures have been adjusted for inflation. They're in 2015 dollars. So you can compare one year to the next. And so that causes some frustration in terms of household income is not as high as it was prior to the recession. And, and Sheriff Feltzer from Columbus, who I quoted earlier, is correct. How good the 1990s were. Median household income rose 15% from $50,478 in 1993 to $57,909 in 1999. Now, why why is household income not growing as quickly? And certainly, globalization and competition from overseas has an impact. The world is more global, and, and those that have more education or more entrepreneurial are able to get higher incomes. But if somebody that doesn't have just as a high school diploma is not necessarily entrepreneurial, just trying to take whatever job they can get. Their wages have definitely stagnated over the past couple of decades. But on the wage front, median weekly real earnings for full-time workers for both wages and salaries are up 5% from 2014 and up 4% from 2007 levels. And so wages have, have been increasing. We now see some increases in household income. but things So things are improving generally. But again, just like with the coal workers, not for everyone. I was recently spent a few days in Park City and I, I swung by Salt Lake City and went behind the, the, the Union Pacific Depot, sort of the train yards in Salt Lake City. And, and I was actually i actually shocked at the number of homeless people living behind this train station. I mean, they were, they were everywhere. And, and this, because my frame of reference, we talked about frame of reference was that in, there's articles how Salt Lake City has reduced chronic homelessness by 91%. And, and so when I go around the corner and suddenly there's this tent village of the homeless, I was shocked. And then there was, I remember seeing a kid throwing a football, but there were a lot of tents and, and people were living there. And it, it was shocking. And, and as I read some of the news stories, they talk about the drug situation and, and some of the danger down there. And, and one in, in a couple of weeks, hopefully, if I, if I get my research together. I want to do an episode on the the opioid epidemic and prescription painkiller epidemic. And we talk about a pretty complex environment. But what what I found fascinating, so you have this homelessness in Salt Lake City, but I was reading early history of Salt Lake City from 1898. Back then, they had a very similar problem. They had a lot of what they called then beggars, and and paupers and and the leaders of the city were, you know, people didn't have jobs, and and what they tried to get them to do was to move to move out to what to call the outer territories, move to Teton Valley, Idaho, where there was still open land and access, and you could grow crops. But a lot of the people they didn't want to leave; they wanted to stay because they liked the amenities of the cities, even the amenities in 1898, where they had carriages and and, and other luxuries. But sometimes when you're unemployed, if, if your circumstances allow, you have to leave. I recently read an article in The Economist that talked about Mohammed Sani. He's a 22-year-old 
and he lived in the Kebi State in northwest Nigeria, and he moved to Lagos, Nigeria, the commercial capital. Each morning at 5 a.m., he fills 10 25-liter plastic jugs with water. It pays 20 naira. He pays 20 naira for these jugs, about five cents each. Then he pulls them around his new neighborhood, Yaba, and sells each one for 25 naira. By 7 p.m., he's made 700 naira, or $2 in profit, which does not get you very far in Lagos. He's moved, he's left his town in the country. He's moved to the city. He's trying to find work. Here's what he says. He says, if I find a better business, I will try it. But the article says, for now, this is as good as it gets. He's left, and he does not have a safety net. We talk about the blessings or some of the, the benefits of living in a in the developed country. Next week, I'm doing an, a podcast episode on the federal government, and particularly the budget, Social Security. And as I went through the numbers, which was surprised, probably surprising to most people, 67% of annual federal spending flows to households to cover living expenses, including health care. So that's Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, help for women with dependent children, subsidies on the health care exchange. 67% of the money is going as a, a safety net for, for households that, that benefit from it. Now, we're going to talk about whether, because some people will say, well, I paid into the system. I'm getting everything. I'm, I'm just... I'm just getting back what I paid in. And we're going to see, we're going to look at the economics of that and show that, no, most people, the vast majority are receiving way more than they paid in in terms of taxes. Presidential candidate Hillary Clinton got in trouble for saying that the coal jobs are, are going to go away. And and the and she, she did not word it well, believe me. She could have phrased it better, but they don't give the entire quote because the entire quote is we need to take care of the workers because they are going to go away and because it's just not as competitive when it comes to natural gas. And and as we talked about several episodes ago, solar is becoming more cost competitive relative in terms of energy production and things change. This is an ongoing trend where there have been less and less coal workers since, since their peak in 1923 of 705,000. And it it could be that some of those coal miners are going to have to do like Mohammed Sani did and leave and move somewhere else where there is better opportunity. Ultimately, when you look at what's going on with the election, when you look at what's going on in, with Brexit, I was I was speaking to a my friend Anne the other day and we were talking about the Brexit vote. And she mentioned just going in, she's an expert in marketing and advertising, and she talked about neuromarketing, how we get these, these sound bites when, when a, an issue gets very, very complex. We sort of gravitate and grab on to, to, to sound bites and act based on that. Right before the election, there was an editorial written by Boris Johnson in the UK Telegraph. And he says, I hope at the very end, I hope you will vote leave and take back control of this great country's destiny. And said in the debate, the couple of days before the Brexit vote, 
there were, I believe there were four speakers in favor of Brexit. And all of them says, please, on Thursday, vote leave so we can take back control of our country. And, and that was kind of the message, take back control. We often act because we want control. We live in an extremely complex world and, and where the linkages and, and the hidden linkages, we just don't, we don't feel in control. And the reality is there is no vote that will, of any candidate, will allow us to get back control. We have to take control ourselves. And the way to do that is we, we need a personal margin of safety. If employment turnover is 33% or more per year, the odds at some point you're going to be unemployed, either because you want to switch jobs or you get fired, is pretty great. So having some savings and be building our inventories of skills like we talked about in last week's episode, episode 124. Understand what trends are going on in your industry. If you're in an industry that is losing tens of thousands of jobs per year or a company that's losing jobs. My son, he, he interned at Hyundai Shipping Yard in, in Seoul, and actually it was in Busan, South Korea. They're having layoffs there because the the shipping industry is going through a huge upheaval. If you're in that industry, you need to be prepared. And so understand what trends are going on in the industry and develop the skills and the network to get get a new job if you have to, to pursue something. I I mentioned in an earlier episode, my father, he he was about my age, so he was 50. He was a recovered alcoholic. He wanted to get back into accounting. He had lost his job at the IRS. He had lost a job at a a convenience store, and he just wanted to go find a job. He was sitting there in his apartment with the electricity coming from an extension cord from the upstairs apartment because the electricity got cut off, and he wanted to work. But he wasn't going about it the right way. He was sending out random resumes printed on a dot matrix printer. He would never have gotten a job. What he ended up doing is going to a temp agency and getting a job in accounting. We have to figure out you know, what are the rules to getting employed in today's economy. And so we, we have to take our own control. Nobody's going to get it. And, and we're going to go through hard times. Generally, everyone will go through that. And so the bottom line is, is the economy doing as poorly as everybody says? It's not. And... It, things are generally improving. And then there's always risk. I mean, one of the things we do on the Money for the Rest of Us Hub is objectively monthly look at economic and market conditions to see what is the risk of recession. There have been a few data points recently that causes some concern for the U.S., but a recession does not appear to be imminent in the U.S. or globally. Things continue to improve on the job front. We have to monitor it. That's why members join the hub so they can monitor it for their personal situation but also for their investment. So we know, should we be making adjustments in our portfolio based on economic trends or valuations or market internals? And again, as always, you can get information for that at the Money for the Rest of Us hub. But ultimately, we have to take control because the economy is going gonna, is gonna to improve. It's going to get worse. But we need that personal margin of safety, that inventories of skills, that constant lifelong learning and experimenting so that we can thrive in whatever environment that we happen to be. 
Show notes, as I mentioned, are at moneyfortherestofus.net. I've mentioned the Money for the Rest of Us hub. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, invest in the economy. Have a great week.